All right. Well, so I, I walked up here a little too early. Uh, so I'm standing awkwardly off stage. We're like, why is he there? I know. I, I, I just wasn't happy about it either. Uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> bad. This has been a crazy morning. Uh, thanks for your patience. Thanks for uh, staying through technical difficulties and all that kind of stuff. Man, I'm so glad. The message of the cross, the message of Jesus is it doesn't depend on our perfection. And thank God for that. Uh, even technical perfection. So all that to say, I'm just really glad to he- be here. Uh, with a little church test. Uh, he is risen. Okay, so if you uh, grew up in the church, you just said he is risen indeed. And if you're going, what the heck is going on right now? Uh, it means that you did not, or you came from a dif- different uh, tradition. Remember the first time uh, that I went to church, I felt like I missed a class. It's like, was there like a, a free registration class for this? Okay, anyways, um, today, uh, if it's okay with you, we're going to dive right in. So there's a bunch of stuff that we're going to cover. Uh, and I'm actually really uh, excited uh, about it. Today, I'm going to tell you why, why you should put your trust in Jesus. Okay, and if you already have, if you're already a, a believer, you already f- are following Jesus, then hopefully today will give you confidence about what you believe. And if you haven't, if you have not put your faith in Jesus yet, or maybe uh, you're new to the church, or uh, you used to go to church and kind of wandered away in the last whatever uh, season, and you're kind of finding your, your way back into faith uh, again, uh, man, I want to, I wouldn't challenge you uh, to consider putting your faith uh, in Jesus. Maybe you've danced around the idea of it, and today's a, uh, it's a perfect day uh, to make that decision. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that at the end of service. But I want to challenge you to put your, your trust in Jesus uh, despite your doubts, uh, despite any questions that you have, any questions you have that I can answer, and even questions that you have that I can't answer, which those are uh, a lot. Uh, I, I, I believe you, can, you should consider putting your trust in Jesus uh, even despite some of the Christians that you've met. Uh, even despite some of the Christians you've done business with, even some of the Christians you've seen on TV or in movies or on the news, you're going, that's the guy, that's the guy they found uh, to represent my faith. Uh, in spite of any scandals that you've seen, despite church hurt, despite of how you view uh, the Bible, uh, in spite of uh, your even church experience, why your, your, your trust in Jesus, uh, putting your faith in Jesus has nothing to do with any of those things because the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our faith is actually not Christians. You realize that? The foundation of our faith is not even the behavior of Christians. And this is going to maybe ruffle some feathers, maybe call me a heretic, but the foundation of our faith is not even the Bible. The foundation of our faith is not answered prayer. The foundation of our faith is what we celebrate today in Easter, right? Or as Nacho would say, Easter's, okay? Never mind. Never mind. You guys Nacho Libre fans? You guys like Nacho Libre? Thank you. Okay, so two of you are like, what the heck? Did I, what is this pastor on? Okay, uh, the reason I want you to put your trust in Jesus has actually nothing to, nothing to do with your personal experience. It's actually simpler than that. And it's actually much bigger than that. I want you to think about something. Why is it that Nero, emperor of Rome, is known primarily for killing Christians instead of being the emperor of an empire? Why is it that Caesar Augustus, Rome's first emperor, the one that made it an, an empire from a republic, he reigned for 40 years, yet outside of history books, the only time you really hear about him is every Christmas. In languages all around the world, as a footnote in the story of this carpenter from Galilee who ruled nothing, went nowhere, went public for three years, and then was crucified by Caesar's adopted son, Tiberius. Why is it for over 300 plus years before there was a New Testament, people were giving their lives for Jesus? How did the, how did the early church survive Rome? How did the early church survive Jewish leadership that wanted to squelch this little rebellion, this little movement, before it ever got off the ground? How do we get here today? It never should have happened. 
The answers to those questions is why I think you should consider putting your faith in Jesus or consider putting your faith back in Jesus. You know, there's actually people that study how movements are created, and there's some things that all these movements have in common, whether it's uh, racial justice or the Macintosh computer, like, whatever, like literally, there's, there's, there's usually some sort of unrest or inequality or inequity. There's some sort of pain uh, or discrimination, right? And then someone comes in with uh, a new voice, with new values, and they say things that make people go, I've never heard that before. So you have this charismatic new leader with some new ideas or seemingly new ideas. And then it appeals to something going on in culture. Take a couple examples that we'll briefly go over. One's the prophet Muhammad, late 6th century, early 7th century. He lived from 570 to 632. He came out of a cave and said that God spoke to him and unified the Arabs in the area, the Arab tribes. And they moved them from polytheism, worshiping multiple gods, to worshiping one god, monotheism. And he militarized them to form an army. Another example, MLK. Incredible discrimination, violence, desperation. And here comes this extremely intelligent, charismatic, motivational guy with a message that inspired and unified not only the African-American community, but millions of non-African-Americans that say, we believe the same thing. We want the same thing as you. And he left his job as his aspiring teacher, as a pastor, went to Montgomery, Alabama. And he took the central idea of not only equality and equity, but of non-violence which was radical at the time. And he gave people an opportunity to say, I'm with them. And a lot of the civil rights movements of the time, that that just was not part of the ethos of their movement, right? He gave an opportunity for those that were not, who were not African-Americans to say, I'm with them too. Do you realize that of the 250,000 people that were at the I Have a Dream speech, that 60,000 of them were white? Do you know that? Almost a fourth were white because of the way that MLK led. The next part of, of the pattern of, of movements is when that founder, when that charismatic leader, when they die, the followers pick up the mantle and they now lead towards the values of that leader. Right? So the prophet, prophet Muhammad died in 632 of natural causes and his followers say, that, hey, it doesn't end here. And they carried on his teachings. Right? And to this day, you'll see Muslims say that, well, the prophet Muhammad said this or the prophet Muhammad taught this. Right? Muslims went on to conquer the Arabian Peninsula, uh, Holy Land, North Africa, Spain. And undeniably, Muhammad is more influential today than he was a thousand years ago. Why? Because his followers took up the reins and continued leading him. They're like, why are you talking about Islam at church? Right? There's, there's a point to this. MLK was tragically shot in 1968. But the civil rights movement gained momentum because of it. Other leaders picked up the mantle and spread his teaching. His death was actually a catalyst for the movement. Right? They led to the same values, and one would assume that the same thing would happen with Jesus, right? That he lived, the way he lived, the way that he taught, and when he was executed, that his followers would feel the need to keep the dream going around his teachings and say, we need to keep following the teachings of Jesus. But, uh, but if any even cursory investigation of, of early church history shows that that was not the case, no serious theologian embraces that theory, what makes Jesus and in turn Christianity so weird is that it was an absolute anomaly when it comes to how movements are created. And we can't view the rise of Christianity like the rise of any other world movement for, this, for one main reason. Jesus' message. What he taught, the whole idea of like, well, Jesus was just this great teacher and he just taught love everybody. That's not true. Anybody who says that never really took a look at what Jesus actually said. There's a couple of big problems with Jesus' message. The first one is it wasn't unique. 
It wasn't unique. His teaching was, 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 was love based on the Old Testament. Centuries old. The newer aspects of his teaching were impractical. Pray for your enemies? Really? That's ridiculous. Pray for, the, pray for the ones who are oppressing us. Pray for the ones who are killing us. It's impractical. Pay your taxes to our oppressors? To the, to the pagan Rome? Pay, pay our taxes to them? Really restrictive guidelines for remarriage? and We don't want to do this. It also wasn't appealing. Jesus would say things like, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. We don't want to. I don't want to do that. Right? Speak up for the undeserved, the marginalized. The ones who have no voice, give them a voice. Get rid of anything that competes with your allegiance, your faithfulness to Jesus. See, people don't like that. People, including me, right? We'd rather be part of something that allows for elitism. We'd rather have something that allows for materialism. We'd, ra- we'd rather have rules that favor our gender, our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status. Another problem with Jesus' message is it affirmed Jewish laws. You don't ever hear Jesus talking about overthrowing Jewish law. He actually affirms it as from God. And you may say, well, Takano, Jesus said that you have been taught this, but now I teach you this. Yeah, but what did he say? He would say things like, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even, if you even think about a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery, right? He would take the Jewish law and he would level it up. He would say, hey, the law that was supposed to impact your heart, you just thought it was your actions, no, 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 we're going to level it up. So you realize what the most important thing is, is what's going on in here, right? So Jesus actually affirmed the, the initial intent of the uh, religious or the, the, the uh, Old Testament. Also, there was no revolutionary theme. There was no overthrow language. People wanted Jesus to come in and overthrow Rome, right? But Jesus didn't go there. He wasn't trying to rally a coup. There were actually times where they would tell Jesus, hey, why don't you, uh, you know, should we pay our taxes, right? Should we, should we have a rebellion against Rome? In other words, they wanted him to say, don't pay your taxes. You don't, des- they don't deserve it. No, but what did he say? Give Caesar what's due to Caesar. Again, he was teaching at a different level. He would say things like, say things like that because what was on the coin of Caesar? Or it was Caesar's image. So he's saying, hey, the, the image of Caesar is on the coins. Give Caesar what's due Caesar. But then he said, give your heart to God, right? Because What's on your heart? Whose image is stamped on your heart? Give God what's due to God. So he was telling them at a whole other level, man, you know, there were times where they would say, uh, we want you to lead this kingdom. They wanted to overthrow this kingdom and him, him to lead his own kingdom. And he would say things like, my kingdom is not of this world. He would talk in ways that made no sense for what a cultural, like uh, a, 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 just a, a movement would be. This is why when they brought him in front of Pilate, Pontius Pilate, on, you know, Holy Week, Pontius Pilate, representative of Rome, would literally look at Jesus and go, I got nothing to accuse him of. He's not a revolutionary. He's not a military leader. He's not trying to overthrow Rome. I got no problem with this guy. Right? The second problem with Jesus' message was that Jesus' message was centered on Jesus. It's really important. Jesus' message was not centered on values. It was centered on Jesus. And this is what sets him apart from every other false messiah that came along. This was the primary problem. He never called his followers to trust in his ideas. Jesus never called his followers to trust in his revolutionary notions. He instructed his followers to trust in who? Him. Right? He would say things like, 
You know, he doesn't take, he doesn't ask people to follow his values. He asks them to follow him. He'd say, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Not follow my values, follow me. He says, anyone who abides in me will bear much fruit. It wasn't his ideas that got him in trouble. It was who he claimed to be. So let's look at a couple passages. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, it says this. When Jesus arrived in the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what are people saying about who the Son of Man is? They replied, some think he's John the Baptizer, some say Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And he pressed them, and how about you? Who do you say I am? And I, just so I can put a pause on that, I think that is the most important question that all of us need to answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Because what it does, it takes you out of like, well, the church, or well, Christians, or well, that religious leader, or that pastor. Put that all aside. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the most important question. So he looks at Simon Peter. Forget about everyone else. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus came back. God bless you. Simon, son of Jonah, you didn't get that answer from books or from teachers by Father in heaven. God himself let you in on the secret of who I really am. And I love this part. And I says, now I'm going to tell you who you are, who you really are. His identity was founded not in what he did, but who he followed. So another time, when John the Baptist is kind of true to form and he's baptizing people, uh, in Matthew, it's where he got the name, right? So Matthew chapter 1, it says this, the next day John, the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God, capital L, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, a man who's coming after me who's far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. What a weird thing to say. He's the Lamb of God who existed long before me. John was older than Jesus chronologically, biologically. So there's people going, wait, but aren't you older? John's like, no, no, no. Way before I was born, he existed. There's something about this guy. He's different than what you're thinking. He doesn't say, John doesn't say, here comes Jesus who will explain everything. Here comes Jesus who will teach you stuff. Here comes Jesus who will answer all your questions and squelch all your fears. It's not, here comes Jesus who will show you how to be forgiven. Because Jesus' message was not about ideas. Jesus' message was about Jesus. To Lazarus' sisters. There's some friends that come to Jesus at one point and say, hey, Lazarus, and Jesus, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, and his friends come to Jesus. Jesus is kind of out, out of the area teaching, and the friends go, man, you got to come now. Lazarus is like on his deathbed. And Jesus kind of lollygags. He does some other stuff, right? And he, by the time he gets to uh, Lazarus's sisters, Lazarus already died. And Lazarus's sisters essentially say, if you would have come here earlier, he wouldn't have died. Hey, this is on you. Kind of a lot to put on somebody. But what does Jesus do in that moment? He didn't say, well, let's pray. He doesn't try to explain the afterlife. He doesn't try to calm their nerves or, hey, let's just have a moment of silence. What does he do? He says this, which is the weirdest thing to say in this moment. John 11, it says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. What? That's weird. His answer is, I am not here to tell you about the afterlife. I'm not here to tell you about life and the resurrection. I am the life and the resurrection. Says the, he doesn't say the one who attends church will live. He doesn't say the one who is nice to people will live. The one who believes all the right things and does all the right things will live. He says the one who believes, who believes in me. In other words, he says, 
The one who believes I am who I say I am, that's the person that will live. This is so important, so kind of put a pin in that. To his disciples, there's one time where the disciples were asking him uh, to show them the Father, right? And again, Jesus doesn't break out a flow chart. He doesn't break out like a flip chart and like, let me show you through how the, how the, uh, how our relationship works, how the Trinity works. Let me break you through, through some, uh, some basic theology. What does Jesus do? He says this in John chapter 14. His answer to them is, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What? Say, look, you want to see the Father? You've seen the Father. Like, we're that close. When you see me, you see him. What he was saying in that moment is, in case you missed it, I'm God. Right? This is why this is so important. Never once, never once did Jesus ever indicate that his intention was to pass on a book of insights. Never once did Jesus ever indicate that his, his motivation was to pass a bunch of principles, some values to live by. Jesus didn't talk about his values or his teachings as primary. He kept talking about himself. This is why when Jesus died, his followers' hopes died. This is why when Jesus died, the movement died. Like we get on the early disciples, specifically Peter. Like how could you deny Jesus? How could you all scatter? Because Jesus' message was based on following Jesus. And if Jesus is dead, the movement's done. Any of us in their shoes would have done the exact same thing. When Jesus died on the cross, there wasn't one person who said, all right, let's honor him. Let's get together and carry on the values of Jesus. Let's carry on the teachings of Jesus. Jesus was so central to his teaching that there was nothing to pass on. How do you encourage people to follow someone who's dead? Right? It makes no sense. So when the disciples watched Jesus die, they watched the movement die. That's what happened on Good Friday. The mission died with him because unlike anyone else, he claimed to be the mission. When Jesus died, no one believed his messages. No one believed his claims who he claimed to be, and the movement died with him. Even before he died, his closest followers scattered. Peter denied even knowing him, right? And so the very people, the very people that bring us the story of Jesus, the Gospels, the writers of the Gospels, present themselves as spineless cowards. Which is kind of weird, right? Because in history, if a king, you know, two kings battle and one king wins, that king gets to write the history books. And a lot of times they make themselves look amazing, right? Revisionist history. That's not what happened here. The gospel writers all present themselves as spineless cowards. Peter goes from you are the Christ to then telling a middle school girl, I don't even know him. Matthew, John, Luke, Mark, all of them bring us the same story. There were no heroes. There were no heroes on Good Friday. Nobody stood by his or her man on that Friday. And this is why we can believe their account. This is why we can believe it. Because if they would have made it up, someone would have been the hero. Someone would have been faithful. If they would have made this up, John would have been like, they all left Jesus except for John, Jesus' favorite, John. Right? He stood by Jesus. He never doubted. But that's not what happened. Peter was the least faithful. One theologian says that there were no Christians at the cross. There were no Christians at the cross. Right after the crucifixion, there were no Jesus followers. There were no disciples. Why? Because messiahs don't die. The Son of God can't be killed. You can't crucify the resurrection and the life. 
When Jesus died and was put in the tomb, everyone was like, ah, I guess we missed that one. He seems so compelling, though, right? So how do we go from that situation? Jesus is dead in the tomb. Disciples are all scattered. How do we go from that scenario to one 300 years later when the emperor of Rome declares Christianity legal, and not only that, he converts to Christianity himself, Constantine? How do we go from that situation where the disciples were scattered and the movement was essentially dead in the water to where this weekend one-third of the planet will gather and worship him as, as Savior and Lord? How do we get from there to here? It makes no sense. But the answer has nothing to do with, Jesus, with what Jesus taught. The answer has everything to do with Easter Sunday. And here's what happened. In John chapter 20, John records it this way. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. Do you know who that is? John. Do you know who wrote this? John. He's a little full of himself. I mean, to be totally honest. He's like, oh, so Mary Magdalene came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, you know, the one Jesus loved. It's like sometimes uh, one of my daughters, or actually both of them will do this time, you know, this is your favorite daughter, right? This is, this is what John's doing. This is Peter, and then there's, you know, the one that Jesus really loved, John. Anyways, you'll see him talk about that more. It's, it's kind of a common theme in his gospel. So he did not deal with humility. So uh, it said the, the one Jesus loved and said, so the Mary Magdalene told Simon Peter, uh, Simon Peter and uh, John, wow, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And in brackets, it says in this translation, no one assumed a resurrection. And in most of your translations, it'll say something along those lines, that no one assumed a resurrection, right? It doesn't say, hey, we went to the tomb and it's empty because he resurrected. No one expected it. No, 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 we watched him die. So their only response is, someone stole the body, right? In the first century, a woman's testimony had no credibility. Don't shoot the messenger. I didn't, I, I didn't do it. Right? But they had, had no, to the point where a woman couldn't testify in court. And again, this is why this gives the account so much credibility. Because they don't embellish the facts to make it more believable. If there was any way to write out women from the story, they would have. It would have been much more compelling to say, and Peter and John, you know, the one, his favorite, found the tomb empty and convinced the women who wouldn't believe. But that's not what happened. Do you know why the gospel writers write that women were the first people to discover the empty tomb? Because they were the first ones to discover the empty tomb. Right? Why is this so important? Because they didn't say he was risen. They didn't know what was going on. They assumed the body was stolen. No one camped outside the tomb waiting for the resurrection. No one thought it was going to happen. They thought it was over. And the ones closest to Jesus thought that when he died, he would stay dead. This is why it says in Luke 24, Peter and John's response, it says this, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Again, they would have written it differently. They would have been like, and we knew it all along, right? No, they were like, okay, did you guys get lost? You guys are crazy. Did you go to the, did you go to the right tomb? Are you sure you went to the right tomb? Because his body is probably there if you went to the right tomb right? Trying to minimalize them. It says they're crazy. They're crazy. So Peter, it says, uh, and John continues, it says, so Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. This is funny. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. It's like, okay, track star, Usain John over here. Uh, 
so the other disciple outran Peter and uh, reached the tomb first. He bent over, probably because he was tired, just kidding, and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in because he just didn't go into tombs. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Simon kind of just leaps before he looks. So he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, whom had, who had reached the tomb first. We get it, John. Okay. <laughs> in case you're wondering. The one uh, who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. John saw and believed. When did John believe? When he heard Jesus' teachings? When he saw Jesus love people? When he saw Jesus' miracles? Did John believe when he saw Jesus executed on the cross like he said he would be? No. He believed when he saw the empty tomb. Right? When he saw that Jesus was resurrected, then everything made sense. When Jesus would say things like, hey, on the third day it would be fulfilled. It's like, oh, I get it now. I thought you were talking hyperbole. Right? The resurrection changes everything. From that point, what we see historically is that the follower of Jesus re-engaged. They all re-engaged. There was a catalyst, and something happened. Not because of what Jesus taught, not because of any miracles that he did, not because of any prayers that he answered, not because someone explained away their doubts. The early church re-engaged, not because some local church had an amazing service with moving lights and had a petting zoo and brought in Steph Curry to come speak, right? It wasn't because, you know, they, they had this great drama and musical and some, some rock star. What caused the early church to re-engage? Because they saw someone die and then saw him resurrected. Suddenly, suddenly what happens is these cowards spill out into the streets and preached everywhere. But listen, listen, I don't want to sound like a broken record. Listen, what did they teach? They didn't teach the parables of Jesus. They didn't teach the values of Jesus. They didn't reteach the teachings of Jesus. They didn't preach the love of Jesus. What did they teach? They had a four-point sermon, and they repeated it over and over and over again through the book of Acts. They would say things like, you killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Now say you're sorry. They said that over and over and over again. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him physically. We've seen him. Now say you're sorry. Repent. Peter, the one who was the biggest coward who couldn't even stand up to a middle school girl, preaches the first sermon in Acts chapter 3. And he says this, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. He went from, he couldn't even tell a middle school girl that he was a follower of Jesus. So now he's going, do whatever you want to me. Do whatever you want to me. I saw him. I saw him resurrected. So they go to him and they say, what should we do then? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Man, he's, he was, he is who he said he is. You gotta follow him. There's no one else you can trust. You gotta trust what he says. I saw him. The resurrection of Jesus answers not only how we got here as a church, but answers life's biggest question. What do we do with our sin? What do we do with our sin? What do we do with our guilt? The Bible talks about where deep calls on to deep, so are we call on to the Lord, and there's something inside of us that we know. We try to fill it with, we, we buy stuff, we achieve stuff, we 
you think the next promotion, the next move, the next purchase, the next relationship, that that's going to get it, and you get there and you're going, it's empty. The stuff isn't bad. It's not bad to have nice things. It's not bad to be in relationships, but those things are great things, but they're terrible gods. And we know that, right? The resurrection of Jesus highlights the point of the crucifixion, which is the forgiveness of sin. And if he rose from the dead, we can trust what he said about his own death. We can trust why he said he had to die. Andy Stanley says it this way. He says, if someone predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, you should trust what he says. Right? Just go with that guy. If someone predicts his own death and resurrection and then pulls it off, you're like, okay, whatever he says is right. The reason why you can trust that Jesus rose from the dead is that there is no other explanation to explain why we know he even lived think about that. The reason, one of the main reasons why you can trust that Jesus raised from the dead is because there's no other explanation as to why we even know that Jesus lived. He was a carpenter from Galilee. Most of us couldn't point out Galilee on a map. He was a, he was a carpenter from Galilee that taught for three years and was executed among thousands of other people that were executed. He should have been a tiny blip on the radar. But yet the reason why we know him is because of the resurrection that changed everything. We don't believe in the Bible because, the, you know, we don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. We believe because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Paul, and other eyewitnesses told us so. We believe that something shifted these self-proclaimed cowards into people willing to die for Christ. They went from, I don't know him, to, you can do whatever you want to me. I'm not going to change what I know I saw. Something changed. There was nothing for them to gain. There wasn't like they went from cowards to someone made a big deposit in their checking account and all of a sudden they were preaching for Jesus. They had nothing to gain and everything to lose. And they would preach and preach and preach. You throw them to the lions. You can make human candles out of them. You can execute them by the hundreds and they wouldn't stop shutting up about it because you can't change what they know they saw. So, why does that matter for us today? If you're a Christian, you can live with confidence. You can live with confidence. This isn't about believing in the tooth fairy. This isn't a myth. This isn't a legend. This isn't Jesus, this guy who taught about just loving people. Let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. You can live with confidence. You can live with confidence that your prayers matter. Your prayers matter. That there's someone else on the other side of the line. You can live with confidence that your faithfulness matters. And man, when you serve, when you serve the church, or you serve in the community, you're not doing it for us. You're following Jesus. Your generosity matters. Because there's a God that's proven himself. And here's the thing, if you're not a Christian, for what, I'm super glad that you're here. And I hope there's people every Sunday that are not in relationship with God yet. And if, you, if, you, if you're not a Christian, if you've never put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, maybe you did when you were young and then you kind of outgrew that flannel graph, that storybook version of Jesus, right? Beauty pageant sash, hold, petting a lamb, Swedish Jesus, right? You outgrew that in the same way you outgrew the Easter bunny. Looking at if there's any kids in here. Sorry if I ruined anything. Uh, Sorry, there's not a man-sized bunny that poops chocolate, you know, so, her peeps. Anyways, uh, 
Maybe you outgrew that child version of Jesus. And it's time for you to believe in the real Jesus. Maybe, maybe you've been hurt by the church or you've seen the behavior of Christians. I'm the first one to say, Christians do some crazy stuff with a capital C, man. There's so many times over, the, I mean, I've been a pastor for 20 some years and there's so many times where I'm like, oh, I'm not with them, but I am with them, but I'm not with them. And I kind of resign myself to the fact that we're all one big family, but we got some weird uncles, you know? So maybe you saw some, some behavior of Christians and you're going, oh, who do you say Jesus is? I tell you, and you know this too, I know you know it. In the quiet moments, you know it. No one offers you words of eternal life but Jesus. No one can fill your soul like Jesus. Nothing you can buy, no promotion you can get, no relationship you can have, nothing. You can check all the boxes, live in the right neighborhood, have the right house, drive the right car, have all the right things. And it's just as empty. There's something missing. It's hollow. And you may say, but talk, I'm a Christian. I kind of feel like I'm missing something. Then maybe you've just been going to church and you're not following Jesus. Maybe it's time again to develop a relationship with Jesus. It's so easy to be around church stuff all the time, but not have a real relationship with Jesus. Can I challenge you? Follow him. Don't follow me. Are you kidding me? Don't follow this church. Follow Jesus. I'm going to let you down. I let myself down a lot. I'm going to let you down. Church will let you down. Jesus won't. So, if you want to give your life to Jesus, there's nothing like magical about any sort of prayer. It's just as, as simple as you saying, God, I give my life to you. I repent. Repent is a, just a $5 word that just means I turn from everything that I want to do and I trust that you're right. I'm gonna, I want to give my life to you fully. And if that's you, just fill out the connection card. We're not going to spam you, I promise. All right? Or fill out the connection card online and just click the box that I dedicate my life to Jesus or I rededicate my life to Jesus. And we're going to send you like an email devotional. You can opt out anytime. If you're like, I hate this crap. I'm just going to unsubscribe. It's fine. We're not going to spam you. We're just going to send you a 40-day email devotional every day, just a little thing to keep you moving in the right direction. All right? So we want to help you get you connected. If you go to our website, just, I think it's just voice.church forward slash Jesus. And it'll walk you through what, what it means to follow Jesus. And I'll walk you through how to sign up for the 40-day devotional. We want to help you. We want to walk alongside you. But here's the thing. We're never going to be able to answer all your questions. You're never, we're never going to be able to, to squelch all your doubts, all your fears. We're never going to be able to heal all your hurt. There's going to come a point where there's going to be a gap still of faith that you choose to trust in Jesus even despite some of his followers. Can I say that? And we would love to walk alongside you. And look, by signing up for that, for, you know, saying you, you want to follow Jesus, you, you're not joining the church. You can't join the church like that. All right? So we just want to walk alongside you. Kind of pray for us, and then we're going to sing one last song together uh, and then dismiss and eat some churros that have no calories in them because we prayed for them. All right? I can't prove it, but if you have diabetes, you probably still need your insulin shot. All right? So let's just pray. Uh, Jesus, we commit our, our day to you. We commit our lives to you. God, for those of us who are Christians, would you activate us? Just like on this Sunday, the church in the first century was activated, and they forever changed the trajectory of s countless lives throughout history. God, would you activate us because of Easter Sunday? God, we don't want to just attend church. God, we want to be the church. We want to be the church. We want to take you seriously. God, we want people, when they meet us, we want them to go, oh, I get a clearer picture of what God is like. We're not here to build up a local church. We're here to build your kingdom.
God, for the, my friends in the room who are maybe even watching line or listening to the podcast, God, I pray if they don't have a relationship with you, God, would you draw them? Would you call them into relationship with you? God, would they trust you with their whole heart? Would it help us to walk alongside them into a thriving relationship with you? God, thank you for Easter. Thank you for Easter. You are good. Even when it's dark, man, you are good. You are hope. We believe hope has a name and it's Jesus. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Let's sing this uh, last song before we dismiss.